Well, thank you very much. That was wonderful. It's fun to sit over here because then you can see the director's face <laughs> and all the expressions and all. It's really something, but well done, uh, Laura and Jim. Thank you both very much. Hey, if you're just joining us, we are continuing in our fall sermon series on the book of Acts, and it's called Square One. And it's called this for a reason. We are celebrating 150 years together as a congregation in Boulder. And this is an opportunity for us to think about our legacy, to think about our history, to think about what it means to be the church, not only in the past, but also moving into the future. And so the book of Acts helps us go back to square one, to think about what God is doing in churches and what we can learn from the early church itself. So that is why we're here. We're glad you're with us online uh, and we're glad you're here in person. Today we're looking at a section, a large section. We're not gonna read all of it, but we're looking at Acts chapter six and chapter seven. And uh, what I'd like to do is uh, start with chapter six. We'll look at the first seven verses. Then I'm gonna paraphrase what's in between. And then I'm gonna finish with uh, the last few verses of chapter seven. So let's listen to the text. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. What happens next in the narrative is that Stephen, the first of the seven, turns out to be the most amazing evangelist. He preaches the word of God. People are responding. He does signs and wonders. He becomes problematic for the Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem. And so their Supreme Court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, calls Stephen before them to make his defense. And so much of what ensues is his speech. And in his speech, he gives a narrative of the history of Israel. And he makes primarily two points, which we'll think about later. And that's that Jesus has not come to destroy the temple, and Jesus is not necessarily against the traditions of God, so you ought not to resist him, is his point. But then he brings his speech to a head, and then he turns it on the Sanhedrin. And he points out that the Sanhedrin are the ones resisting God, not the new Christian movement. And watch how the Sanhedrin responds. Now we're in Acts 7, beginning at verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, it is exciting for us to read of the early church, to be inspired, to be instructed. Now take, Lord, what we've just read and make it become the spoken, the preached word of God in our hearing and in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. When you were small, did any of you have something called growing pains? Growing pains. Maybe you have a grandchild right now who has growing pains, or maybe one of your kids has growing pains. Growing pains are kind of mysterious. We don't understand them completely, but they afflict small children, and they often are a dull, aching throb in their legs that prevent them from sleeping at night. It could be because they're so active. It could be because they're going through a growth spurt, but we're not sure. But they're growing pains. And I think that all human organisms and organizations can have growing pains. Think about it when we work out. We go to the gym and we exercise a muscle. We break it down, it is painful, and then it builds back up. Growing pains can pre, uh, precede great growth. It's that way when we go to a counselor and we, we get close to an emotional or psychological issue deep in our lives, and it becomes painful, but it can be also the beginning of great growth. Human individuals and human corporate gatherings can have growing pains. And that is what I think is happening to the early church. I want to show you their growing pains. I want to show you also how these were diagnosed and treated and what the outcome was. So let me just remind you of how they were growing. First verse of our reading this morning. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. You have to remember back several chapters. Pentecost came and several thousand people became Christians there in Jerusalem. The early church attended to the word of God and the preaching of the apostles and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers and the Christian movement expanded rapidly. And so they're growing and good things are happening, but it's not without pain. There are growing pains. Let's go to the next slide. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked and the daily distribution of food. Now, who are these groups of people? The Hellenistic Jews are the Greek-speaking Jews. They're the ones from the diaspora around the Mediterranean world who have uh, dispersed and are living in Jewish ghettos throughout the cities of the Roman Empire. They come to Jerusalem for the high holidays, and they bring with them their widows. Their widows may, in fact, want to die in Jerusalem because that is great honor and be buried there. But these are culturally Greek-speaking Jews. They likely have uh, hairstyles and dress that reflect Greco-Roman, not Palestinian Jewish culture. And so there's a, a divide within the religious people of God, the Hellenistic Jews, and they're complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Now, who are these folks? 
The Hebraic Jews speak Hebrew, but actually more specifically Aramaic. And they have the customs, the dress, the language of Palestinian Judaism. And so in the early church movement, they reflected some of the divisions in early Judaism. And the Hellenistic Jews, as visitors to Jerusalem, their widows are being neglected in the distribution of food. So those are the growing pains. Watch now what the early church leaders do. Here's the diagnosis and treatment. So the 12, remember these are the 11 apostles of Jesus and a 12th Matthias who replaced Judas Iscariot. So the 12 gathered all the disciples, all the Christians of the early church together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, now be clear here before we move on. They're not diminishing the ministry of waiting on tables. As you'll see in just a minute, they're going to select leaders who are full of the spirit and wisdom to do this ministry. So they're not trying to create a hierarchy of ministry. But clearly the 12 have been called to the ministry of the word. And they are trying to do too many different things and they're neglecting this ministry. Now let's go on. Continuing, brothers and sisters, choose seven. What a nice round biblical number. Seven men from among you, the Hellenistic Jews, who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. These are spiritual leaders who are to do food distribution. Next slide. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They're going back to their original calling. Let's keep going. And here's the outcome. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's a spiritual leader. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, all of these Greek names. So these were Hellenistic Jews leading the ministry. Uh, they presented these men to the apostles who then prayed and laid their hands on them. Now we do that at this church, don't we? When we ordain deacons and elders, we ask elders to come forward to lay their hands on them and pray. We do that because the early church and Judaism before it did it. It's a way of ordaining. It's a way of endorsing. It's a way of affirming new leaders. That's why we do this. And you can see the outcome is a very positive one. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, more growth. And a large number of priests, imagine that, became obedient to the faith. Isn't that an amazing story? I want to reflect with you on it on a couple items of practical application. And the first one is this. Beware complaining. Beware complaining. Complaining is a sin in both Old and New Testaments. Did you know that? Complaining is also known as grumbling. Grumbling. And... uh, Let's take a look at what the Old Testament has to say. In the Old Testament, complaining is often known as grumbling. The people of Israel did this in the wilderness against their leaders like Moses, and it was a sin. Uh, It was uh, threatened to destroy the early life of the people of Israel, and now it threatens to destroy the life of the early church. Let's move on to the next slide, because in the New Testament, we see it builds on this. The New Testament has a special term for this, and maybe you've heard me share this before. It's this great Greek word, gonguzmos. Say it with me, gonguzmos. It is an example of onomatopoeia. Remember that from high school English? Onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is. 
So think about it, grumbling, gungusmos. <laughs> you can just hear it. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, a, it's not a good thing. So, so we need to beware complaining. Now let's be clear, complaining, grumbling, is, has a certain dynamic to it. I think what happens is we don't like what some leadership is doing or not doing, and instead of going to the leaders with our problem, we go to someone else, and we grumble and complain. And what it effectively begins to do is it begins to split other people away, and then divisions exist between them and the leadership. And before you know it, there is a big division. Uh, there is dysfunction in a group of people. And we can do this type of thing in our work environment, in our families, and in the church. We need to beware complaining. Let's move on to a second application. We need to choose our battles wisely. Complaining and grumbling can occur for a lot of reasons. And if we're going to be perturbed, and if we're going to have to exercise faithful response and go directly to the source of what's bothering us, we need to make sure that what is bugging us is worthwhile. In other words, it's not about the color of the carpet. It's not about the quality of the coffee. And it's not even about the music selection. It's got to be something more profound than that, something significant in the life of the church. Doctrine is changing from the pulpit, perhaps or there's something very unhealthy going on, then we need to take our concern directly to the source and address it that way. So we need to beware complaining. We need to choose our battles wisely. Thirdly, we need to communicate openly. Did you see what the early church leaders did? They brought it before the group of people, the people who were grumbling, and they sought to have a direct communication with them. And that is a healthier way of doing things, to communicate openly. Are you all familiar with emotional triangling? This is something that's uh, part of family systems therapy. And uh, it, 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 it's very, I think, fascinating to me because it goes like this. If you have a problem with someone else, you go sometimes, very often, to someone other than that person to complain about this person. And it creates this unhealthy triangle. Often it's because you don't want to go directly to the source of the problem, and you're hoping that the other person will go to the source on your behalf. And what it does is it sets up a very unhealthy system. It happens in churches, it happens in families, it happens at work. Emotional triangling. But when we communicate openly by going to the source of our issues rather than around the back, we can challenge that. Okay, fourthly, we need to be clear about our gifts and call. The early church leaders, the apostles, had to make a determination. We can't do everything. We can't run the food distribution and administrate that, as well as preach the word of God and pray and cast vision with Jesus' help and the Holy Spirit's help for the church. We've got to focus. And so they learned to be clear about their gifts and call. We need to do that as well. John Stott has a brilliant quote here. John Stott in his commentary on Acts says, what is needed is the basic biblical recognition that God calls different men and women to different ministries. Then the people, when they, we realize this, will ensure that their leaders are set free from unnecessary administration in order to give themselves to the ministry of the word. 
and the leaders will ensure that the people discover their gifts and develop ministries appropriate to them. The Bible teaches, and many of you are aware of this, the Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit residing in you as a follower of Jesus, you have at least one spiritual gift. The New Testament makes it clear. And there are many gifts uh, listed there. And one of the joys and delights for Christians is to discover your gift and use it. That's one of our responsibilities, to discover our gifts and use them. And once you do that, you will flourish. And when you flourish, the church will flourish. Uh, But when we focus on areas that are outside our gifting, we often become burned out and drained and unhappy. So let me issue a challenge to you who are listening today. Discover your gifts and use them. And we have a marvelous ministry, Equip, Connect, Serve, here led by Shirley Davis and others. They will help you. There are ways to do this. So we need to make sure that we are clear about our gifts and call. Last point, choose your leaders carefully. Did you see this in our passage? They didn't just take warm bodies and fill empty positions. No, they they wanted people who were full of the Holy Spirit, people who were full of wisdom. Um, And that's why we, in our selection process in this church, our nominating process, we are careful to, to be discerning about who we nominate for church office, elder, deacon, or even our trustees. We want to make sure these are people who are qualified. Because friends, I have seen, and maybe you have too, times in the lives of churches where church nominating people were not careful. And when they nominated people who shouldn't have been in that position, the church suffered as a result. And so we see this process happening in the early church. And you know, this is about to happen in our church right now. We are in the process of nominating a committee who will then nominate those of you to become part of the pastor nominating committee. Don't you love Presbyterian polity? But we are prayerful and and hopeful that we will seek and, and appoint people for you to prove who will be part of that pastor nominating committee for our new pastor. Now, they will have an executive search firm uh, called Agora helping them cull out a lot of applicants and then present them as finalists. And then that committee will have to make a selection on your behalf and present their number one candidate to you for approval. So we want to be sure that we're praying that our process chooses leadership carefully. Amen? All right. Very good. All right, now we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into the second half of the passage. And I want to think about Stephen and his speech and what it teaches us. Accusations against Stephen. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, leveled this against Stephen. They said, we have heard Stephen say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Well, this place, well, that's the temple the building to worship God. The customs, those are the traditions meant to enact God's will. So what Stephen does in response to these, frankly, trumped up accusations, what Stephen does is he makes his speech. And he, he tells the story of Israel and how, in fact, often Israel made some of these mistakes. And his point included this. He said, God is not limited to a place. God is not limited to a particular land 
or a building. In fact, in the history of Israel, God did some of his best work in the wilderness and and resided in a tent with the people of God. God didn't need a, a, a temple, in other words. And then Jesus picked up this theme in his earthly ministry in the, in the Gospels. Jesus wasn't concerned with the land. You know, that was an obsession for the Jews of the first century. They wanted their land back. We can understand that. The Romans were occupying them. But Jesus never addressed it. The land was not his concern. He was thinking about the globe, the whole earth. And Jesus himself, though he honored the temple, wasn't terribly concerned about it. In fact, Jesus said, remember... John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And John says, he said this about his body. The temple shifts away from a physical building into a spiritual reality, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus teaches through his apostle Paul that we, the body of Christ, the church, we are his spiritual residence, the temple. The temple shifts away from a building and to a people of God, a spiritual reality. Let's think about traditions then. Traditions. Traditions are important. Traditions help us at some point early on to do the will of God. But Jesus held loosely to traditions, didn't he? Jesus held loosely to traditions. In fact, Jesus criticized the Jewish religious leadership who held tightly to tradition. And he said this. You have let go the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Their traditions had kept God away from them and from the people. Jesus didn't deny the temple or traditions, but he put them in their place, their proper place. His focus was beyond them. And ours should be as well. Because God's people can get tangled up in buildings and traditions. Now, let's be clear. Buildings are great. Buildings are an important tool. And I hope that you're taking the time in this 150th celebration to see the pictures in Sheldon Jackson and see the old buildings that have meant so much to our congregation. They're vital. They're they're helpful. But they're tools. And tools have a a, a lifespan and a usefulness. Traditions are the same way. Traditions help us enact the word of God, but they need to shift and change. And when they become hardened, They can prevent what God wants to do. Do you know the seven last words of the church? We've never done it that way before. (laughs) When we harden into that type of traditionalism, we then resist what God wants to do in our midst. And in times of change, our buildings and our traditions can become mistaken refuges, places we try to find stability instead of in God. And so we need to beware this. The early church movement had to address this with the Jewish leadership. Because if we're not careful, we will cling to the buildings and traditions and resist the change that God wants us to bring. So we hold loosely to these things. They may be wonderful tools, but they are not all absorbing. Another quote from John Stott on change. Stott writes, change is painful to us all. Can I get an amen? Yes, change is painful to us all, especially when it affects our cherished buildings and customs. And we should not seek change merely for the sake of change. Amen to that. Yet true Christian radicalism that goes back to the core of Jesus' teaching is open to change. It knows that God has bound himself to his church and promising that he will never leave it 
and to his word, promising that it will never pass away. But God's church means people, not buildings. God's word means scripture, not traditions. So long as these essentials are preserved, the buildings and the traditions can go if necessary. We must not allow them to imprison the living God or to impede his mission to the world. Wow. Friends, all human organisms and organizations grow. And in their growth, whether it's in depth or breadth, there is pain. There is growing pain. And change can be painful. And our current situation, with its changes, may be painful to some of you. But I think our intent is a good one. We're wanting to get us more flexible, more open to change. Because when we have new leadership for a new era, change will be upon us. Meanwhile, there are so many good things to celebrate that are going on in our midst right now. This past uh, Monday, we had a church staff meeting and we studied what it means to flourish as a congregation. And we were told to write down on our little sheet, each of the staff members, areas where we felt the church was flourishing. And here are some of the things that people listed. They said, well, there's a 20-member covenant partner class, a new member class going on right now, and half of them are under 40. That's a good thing. Absolutely. That's a good thing. We're getting new visitors, many of you here today. We are excited. You're wonderful. We're enjoying getting to know you. We're having a new ministry to welcome young adults, and it's just taking off, and it's, it's uh, strategic, and it's valuable. There are new opportunities for discipleship and growth, small groups and classes and chances to serve. There's a fresh willingness to do ministry differently here in Boulder. We're aligning our church staff and our resources more effectively to do what we consider core ministry in the church. There's more than one voice from the pulpit. That's a sign of health. We've got old and young, male and female preaching, and it's great. We have a flourishing prayer ministry, and we have a blended service, which Some people are really liking. We're hearing a lot of good reports. So good things are happening in our midst, and we want to celebrate those. Very good things are happening. Uh, When I came out of that staff meeting on Monday, I went to go get a sandwich, and it was 70 degrees out, and it was a beautiful fall day. And I was thinking about our staff meeting, and as I was walking back, I felt a strange feeling inside me. I thought, what exactly is that? And you know what I realized? The feeling was happiness. (laughs) I was happy. I I felt happy. I haven't felt happy here in a long, long time, to be honest. But I was happy because good things are happening here. And our church staff sees it. Our leadership sees it. And hopefully you're seeing it too. Growing pains, yes. Good things, absolutely. So hopefully this text will be a guideline for us as we think about what it means to grow and change together. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the good work you did in the early church, but the good work also you're doing here. And so we pray that you would help us continue to be open, to take to heart what we've studied today and by your spirit apply it to us. Help us to be a a group of people who love one another and work together for what you have before us. In your name we pray, amen.